Net-A-Porter presents The Incredible Women Podcast, Series 5, The Rule Breakers. Hi, Alice. <laughs> Hi, Katie. What a delight I to know, have you with us. so how, nice to see you again. How are you doing? I'm so well, thanks. Welcome to the new series of The Incredible Women Podcast. This season, we're talking to women who are breaking the rules and really pushing boundaries. Consider them radicals or mavericks and prepare to be inspired by their vision. I'm Alice Casely hayford Content Director at Net-A-Porter, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Katie Hessel for this episode of our Rule Breakers podcast. Katie, art historian, broadcaster and curator, launched the brilliant Instagram account and podcast, The Great Women Artists, to address gender imbalance in the art world by reinserting women back into the canon of art history. In her new book, The Story of Art Without Men, she spotlights the countless artists who have so often been overlooked or dismissed and tells the history of art as it's never been told before. Katie, hello, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. Thank you so much. That was such a lovely introduction. I'm thrilled to be here. This is one of the rare times I'm actually being interviewed myself. So I'm very excited and glad it's with you. <laughs> it's such an honour, but also a lot of pressure. The tables have been <laughs> no, turned. The podcaster becomes the podcastee. But fingers crossed this will go well. But first and foremost, of course, you're our guest on our Rule Breakers podcast. What does rule breaking mean to you? And would you consider yourself a rule breaker? It's such an interesting question because, of course, why would you not want to be a rule breaker? And I was thinking about the book and what it means to sort of break these rules. And I was kind of almost laughing to myself that it could be considered a rule breaking tactic or something, mm -hmm. because in a way it's actually putting things straight a lot of the time, rule breaking is actually taking something that is broken mm -hmm. and putting it right, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Because I think the way that we've been sort of programmed in this world, and especially in art history, the people who have been in charge have been breaking the rules for so long, and now we've got our power back. Mm -hmm. And now it's time to say, actually, let's put things right. Totally, and thank God you are. So to go back, 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 when did you first fall in love with art? And when did you kind of recognise the underrepresentation of women in the art world and realise that it was something that you wanted to, to subvert? My love of art stems from literally when I was a kid. You know, I grew up in London and, and a sort of Saturday afternoon thing. Me and all my brothers and sisters would go with our parents to take modern, check it out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't necessarily to sort of learn about something in particular, mm -hmm. but it was about just seeing what was there. I remember being about six years old and the Louise Bourgeois spider was erected on Tate Modern's Bankside. Mm -hmm. And it was this sort of giant spider. And I remember just being completely in awe. So I think it was then. And as I kind of got older, I was always so interested in the arts. Actually, I wanted to initially go into fashion when I was younger. And then I um, wanted to be an architect at one point. And then suddenly it was art that just completely opened my eyes up. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Mm. And I remember also going to the Anish Kapoor exhibition at Royal Academy in about 2010. And I was a teenager with my mum. And just being like, there was this huge like train of wax in mm -hmm. the middle of the Royal Academy and being like, what the hell is this? Mm. But it was, it doesn't even matter what it is. I, I don't even know the context of it. It was about being awestruck, like yeah. I said. And then I did history of art for my A-level at sick form and I never knew that you could just study this subject yeah. and I was like this is a joke well I could just look at art all day and talk mm. about it this is amazing and so it kind of stemmed from there and I had the most wonderful teachers in the whole world who I'm still in touch with who I owe everything to and then I did history of art at university and then the rest is kind of history. 
I had a very similar experience of falling in love with art. I did art history, A-level. I loved English literature so much that I had to do that. But there is this very similar crossover in terms of looking back at history through storytelling effectively. Obviously, we share a similar passion for art, but I think for a lot of people, it can be quite inaccessible. So I think for someone who's wanting to get into it, but maybe feels intimidated by going to galleries, what would you suggest or recommend? Actually, art can be something that everyone can be part of. You don't have to have studied it. When I was six and I went into the Tate Modern Turbine Hall, obviously I knew nothing about art. Even as a teenager, I didn't know that much, but it was about going to these museums and seeing what is out there and just looking at a picture for literally 30 seconds and something starts to unravel in front of you. And the beauty about art is the fact that you know, you can do it on a weekend. You can do it in your spare time. And you don't need to be from any certain background at all mm -hmm. to want to be part of this. It's about having this urge to create. And that's what I really hope. Well, I really hope that maybe my podcast or Instagram as a very sort of small fraction of this can maybe help people get into this. Because mm -hmm. I want to say to people, art is all around us. Mm -hmm. You are considered a subject. Everyone is considered a subject. Let's talk about this. And I think that's what I really want to sort of unleash in the book is that for me, every single artist and artist work reference, I mean, it was impossible to like, I know it's 500 pages, but I literally could have written <laughs> about 500,000 pages, like much to the dismay of my editor. But, <laughs> but it's about saying like all these Subjects are so important mm. and they're about real life mm -hmm. circumstances. Mm -hmm. I was rubbish at history at school and I hated it. I found it boring. I couldn't remember dates, but art history was a way that brought everything to life for me. Um, and it just became so vivid and so rich. But I think a frustrating thing for me was that in terms of female representation or storytelling around women, we were either eradicated or we were nude or it was, you know, very much through the male lens. Tell me more about that and how all of your work is trying to kind of show a different vantage point for women. When you look at the lack of representation, it's abhorrent. And for me, it took until I was 21, actually, after my degree to really think about the lack of representation of women, of people of colour, of queer people, all these people who have been left out of the canon. Yeah. And... Yet I was still able to enjoy it somehow, but I enjoy it so much more because I feel like, oh, that's my story. When I go to the National Gallery, you know, somehow you don't see yourself represented there. And that's an issue mm. because no wonder people feel excluded mm -hmm. from it because mm -hmm. most of the time you're seeing this sort of white, male, elitist, educated in a certain way, um, you know, image or visualisation or story. And actually when you open it up, it becomes something completely different. I went to University College London to study art history. For me, that's one of the best courses because, well, just the, the tutors are just remarkable, like Tamar Garb and Bryony Fur and Minnon Nix and all these sort of feminist pioneers. It was on my final term of my final year. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to be an art dealer. I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do with my life. And then I did this class and we learned about Anna Mendieta. We learned about Ukeles. We learned about like... Um, land art. We learned about Jenny Holzer. We learned about all these artists who basically use art as a form of activism. And it suddenly opened up my brain to this world that art could be something else than maybe something to be looked at or something about history it actually can be used as a force for change. How do you navigate an industry that is so male dominated? You are a young woman. It is a lot of old men. How do you assert yourself in such a male-dominated space and have you had any experiences of a lot of misogyny? Going back to this idea of rule-breaking, it's like, okay, well, if this art world has been put in this, in these structures and this mm -hmm. scaffolding, I'm going to do my own thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start an Instagram because mm -hmm. 
I, that's free and I have no, you know, I can have any qualifications I want to do it. I can start a podcast because I have two microphones and a SoundCloud account. Um, I can, you know, put on an exhibition in an advertising agency because someone gave it to me. And actually it doesn't matter where you start. Mm. You know, I, I, I had my first exhibition at Mother, the advertising agency in, in East London, and it was amazing. And like, I think a thousand people came on the first night and yeah, an advertising agency might not be the first thing that you think of for an art exhibition space, but everyone's got to start somewhere. And so I think also my advice to people as well would be to sort of work with your peers. But in terms of, let's say, the National Gallery that you mentioned earlier, I believe only 1% of the collection um, are women artists. Is there anything that we can do as merely observers or people, art enthusiasts, people who enjoy it? What can we do to kind of push things forward, if anything? I think, well, first of all, lobby, of course, Mm. but I think talk about it as well and actually address the fact that there is just 1% Mm -hmm. of the collection as female. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what does that tell us about the way the nation feels mm-hmm. about us, the way that like art history mm-hmm. feels about us, the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. it's really not okay. And what I love is people like the Gorilla Girls who are in my um, 80s chapter, they formed in 1985. They're this amazing, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, this sort of activist collective. And they go around the world with these amazing kind of slogans and posters and put up these stats. And actually what's crazy is that when I tell people that stat, they're shocked. Mm-hmm. But then when you really think about it, are you that shocked? Like it's... It's crazy. But I think, you know, what we have to do is just work in making sure that these stories are told. And if the National Gallery aren't going to accept them right now, then we have to create vital resources like books, like Mm -hmm. exhibitions, you know, lobby, create these conversations, discussions that are also long term, because Mm -hmm. it's it's fine to have an exhibition of Artemisia Gentileschi in 2020, who I think it was their first ever exhibition of historic female artist. And it was absolutely incredible but it's like that was on for six weeks because of covid and we need to sort of sustain these stories Mm. so what can we do to sustain them put them in collections and i think it's about the museums really taking on board the fact that this is one of the most urgent issues of our time if you're enjoying this episode please check out more great conversations from our four previous incredible women series to thank listeners, we're offering first-time customers 10% off their first net order. Just enter the code RULEBREAKERS at the checkout. T's and C's and exclusions apply. Well, that brings us nicely onto your <laughs> book, which is thankfully, you know, incredible and really, uh, you know, chronicling all of the amazing artists that we've spoken about. How did you sit down to start it? You said you could have written 500,000 pages, but you've somehow done it in just 500. What was the process like? So, I mean, obviously I'd never written a book before um, and it was amazing. I I think the book was originally meant to be 30,000 words and it turned into 100,000 because it's just like you can't leave these stories out. And I mean, it was funny. I got the deal, I think, in about January 2020. And so my enti- the, the entirety of my lockdown was essentially writing this. It's divided into five different parts, uh, which sort of each pinpoint sort of major shifts in art history. It's the last 500 years because there was very limited information on women before that. And I'm in love with every single artist in it. I mean, it could have killed me to write about 150 words-ish on each artist because there is just so much to say. Like It's based on a famous book called The Story of Art by Ernst Gombrich. And his first ever version in 1950 didn't include a single woman artist. And I think even today, it's 16th edition, which is the one I have, which I had uh, 
sixth form and university includes just one woman artist. Do you have any particular highlights from the book? For me, it's the chapters that may be less obvious. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I, my favourite chapter is obviously surrealism, which I love. And it sort of charts people like Eileen Agar and Leonora Carrington and Leonor Feeney and all these amazing people. But I love, my one of my favourite chapters is actually about like artists who actually lived throughout the war. So this amazing artist called Hannah Reigen, who was Norwegian, and she made these amazing tapestries that were almost like propaganda. You know, she would leave them out for Nazi passers-by to see. And, you know, wow. these incredible things. And she taught her herself how to um, work on a loom. And then you also have someone like Charlotte Salomon, who I think made one of the most incredible works in art history called Life or Theatre. And she made it when she was on the run from the Nazis. Uh, while she was living with her grandparents in south of France. And it was made between 1941 and 1943. And it is just harrowing and stark and real and true. You know, she made it when she was a similar age to me. She was actually younger. Um, and it was about growing up in Berlin, being a young Jewish girl, obviously living with what was happening with the rise of Nazism, but also being a young girl and falling in love and experiencing friendships and all these things. But because of what was going on around her, she couldn't comprehend whether the world she was living in was life or theatre mm. because it was so stark and unimaginable today. I mean, maybe we could compare it with something that's going on at the moment. But I think, you know, when you see a, when you see someone making a work in the moment like that, you know, when you think about how these works have been, have survived. I mean, I'm totally standing on the shoulders of amazing scholars like Griselda Pollock who have championed her. But it's like, how have these stories not been written into the history of art? Why isn't her work on the walls of Tate Modern? I mean, I got to see her at the Jewish Museum in Camden a few years ago, but it's like, these are some of the most important works of our time and tell mm -hmm. the truest stories. And like what you're saying, you know, how do we understand history? It's through these images what people made in the moment because they were so visceral and real. I think so many readers are going to be illuminated <laughs> and discover so much through this brilliant book. But obviously you have such an amazing wealth of knowledge in terms of art history. <laughs> you sort of are... psychotically No, it's amazing. But were there many things that you discovered when researching the book that you were sort of blown away by that you didn't know before? Yeah, I mean, it's like when you think, like one of my favourite chapters is on post-war America. And of course, everyone knows the abstract expressionists and Lee Krasner and Helen Frankenthaler and Joan Mitchell and Elaine de Kooning. And I mean, you know, these are sort of heroes of mine. But again, lots of people haven't even heard of Helen Frankenthaler. And to me, she's a total titan mm -hmm. of art history. But then you kind of think about what was going on in America at the same time and like what post-war represented. And there was this amazing school called Black Mountain College. And this school produced artists like Ruth Asawa. And she made these incredible wire sculptures that look almost like wombs or... They're just so, they're like these sort of bodily sculptures. They just sort of come alive. And then when sort of lit, they create these shadows and they're just these kind of living womb-like sculptures. And she also faced internment because she was of Japanese descent. When you think about her story and how, you know, she was such an important artist and she went to this school, which was so sort of based around free thinking and allowed people of any race and any gender a place and opened up this world to free thinking. It was just incredible. And I think, you know, 
I learned so much when you really sort of look at what was happening in the feminist movement in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and who was sort of defining art right now, I think, although it follows the kind of main movements, there are also these pockets of information throughout the book, which is sort of talking about the alternative sides of it. So who were these artists who were kind of, you know, they might not be recognized even today that much, but they were doing the groundwork that entire time. And they might be part of these small collectives, but actually these small collectives deserve a place in art history. Like where we at black women artists in the in 1970s, like, or AIR gallery in the 1970s. It, it, you know, these people need to be known because although, you know, we might see this surge of artists of color or women artists mm. now, people have been doing this for centuries. When you look at some of the biggest galleries, obviously we're based in London currently, um, looking at the National Gallery or the V&A, I do feel there has been a lot of development in, ty- in terms of the type of shows that are being exhibited at the moment. But does it feel authentic to you or does it feel tokenistic? And do you think um, we're seeing meaningful change that will stand the test of time? I think so, because I think when you think about the people who are in charge of these institutions, I think it was about 2016 or 17 that Frances Morris became the director of Tate Modern. Mm -hmm. And this was such a moment in our history. And it was like five years ago, (laughs) which is insane. And Frances Morris is an incredible curator. You know, she was the person who spearheaded the Agnes Martin shows, the Louise Bourgeois shows. She did Kusama in 2012. And we think about the sort of global phenomenon that Yayo Kusama is today with her Infinity Mirror Rooms. You know, she was doing that Mm -hmm. before anyone else. And I think it's so important that she then became this gatekeeper in a way, because then it becomes authentic because these people have been doing the groundwork for so long. And I think that's what makes it authentic. I think that also it is about making sure that the collections that are building at the moment are also 50-50, you know, that include all different genders and that all different genders are represented as Mm. well. And their stories are told. Mm. You know, there's an amazing exhibition that was last year all about Australia Mm. uh, at Tate Modern, which you wouldn't find 10 years ago at all. And, you know... Museums are these such important sort of cultural temples in a way that, you know, I go to them, even me as an art historian, I go to them to learn about art. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did when I was younger. And so if you're not seeing, if you're not seeing yourself represented, then how are you actually supposed to find out about those artists? And so it's amazing that we now have these directors, Mm -hmm. you know, the first woman is head of the Louvre. We've got Maria Balshaw in charge of Tate, Zoe Whitley, who was chief curator at Hayward, who's now at the Chisholm Hill. And all these people are making such a difference. And there is just this absolute moment in art right now. and Everything is shifting. Well, exactly. Because I think, as you said, these artists have always been here. Yeah. But it's more so about a changing of the guard and the people in power who are making a difference and whose voices are being heard like yours. And, <laughs> you know, all of these amazing directors, as you said, of different museums and galleries. So yeah, I wanted to hear your take. But I do feel that it it's an authentic moment and it's going to be make a meaningful, long-lasting Im- impact, I hope. But in terms of personal mentors, who have there been anyone who has been a huge influence on your career or who's guided you to kind of remain as impassioned and brilliant and vibrant as you are? Uh, who, who's been an influence for you? Well, I think, you know, I mentioned my teachers when I was younger. I mean, they were so formative and I still know them, although I still call them sort of like Mr. Street and Dr. Coburn and, and they're like, <laughs> please just call me my actual names. Um, so they were amazing. But I think, you know, I'm just constantly looking at the trailblazers who came before me. People like Griselda Pollock, who was this 
titan of an academic who has, I think, published about 120 books. Um, and she's at Leeds University. And she's just been at the forefront of the feminist movement for so long and has been doing that work, the groundwork. And I, that's what I also want to do with my podcast. It's I interview these sort of world-famous artists like Cecily Brown and Julie Meritu and Phila Dabalo and Cornelia Parker and Lebena Hamid. But actually, it's also about interviewing these academics who have been doing the groundwork for so long. There's the amazing Eleanor Nairn at Barbican, who is such a mentor to me, who I think I get to read everything I write. She created the Lee Krasner exhibition, which was also such a moment, you know, to put in the Barbican, this artist whose last solo exhibition was in 1965 in London, and to take over that. And I remember, I think one of the headlines of a newspaper was, you know, Jackson Pollock's wife gets exhibition. Mm. And it was like, no, guys, Lee Krasner, she's the one who comes first. I mean, there are so many people. In terms of your amazing podcast, have there been any particular highlights, any amazing conversations that you can tell us a bit more about? And are there any guests you haven't had on yet that you would, would be your dream guests? Oh my God, so many. Um, so basically I've carved out a career where I interview my heroes and it's not that bad. <laughs> but they say don't meet your heroes, but it's all worked out so far. They have been incredible, literally. And I have learned so much from them. People like Lubaina Hamid. I remember I saw her work at Spike Island in about 2017, the exhibition she won the, her Turner Prize for. And for those who do not know, she was the first woman of colour to win the Turner Prize, which is insane uh, and also amazing, obviously. Um, but ridiculous that it took that long. And... Um, I remember I interviewed her during lockdown and she gave me an hour and 45 minutes. And I was like, what the hell? This is one of the most famous artists in the whole world. And we are just chatting about her life. And that is just one of my favorite episodes because she's so generous with her time and her wisdom and everything and just open to these conversations. I mean, I remember interviewing Julie Meritu, who was this goddess of art, who is this amazing American artist. And you just get to ask them the questions that you've always wanted to ask, which is incredible. And, um, you know, I have like one of my favorite aspects of my podcast is I interview um, people's family members. So I, I like track down Anna Mendieta's niece and to hear about what her relationship was like when Anna Mendieta was alive. I mean, really sadly, she died when she was 36. But, you know, uh, Ra Raquel, Ra Raquel, who I interviewed, you know, knew her as a kid and a teenager growing up and she was her mentor. And to hear what that person was like and the impact of and Anna Mendieta's work on the world is actually felt by her family on a personal level as well. And you can tell that. And we talked about her time as a teacher and her time in Rome and, you know, times that maybe haven't always been you know, put on the world stage as much as they should have maybe. And I love those kind of intimate conversations or going down to Lee Miller, who was this titan of photography, who's featured in the book about a thousand times because I love her so much, her granddaughter and recording it at Farley's Farm in East Sussex and recording it in the attic room where Picasso stayed. And, you know, just the wow. rich history that comes with that and their journey to to uncovering her work, her work as a photographer because they didn't know she was a photographer until after she died. And one of my favourites was interviewing Nick Willing, who is Paul Arego's son, in Paul Arego's studio. And it was just a dream come true because, I mean, he is a remarkable storyteller and director in his own right. And for anyone who hasn't seen the documentary Secrets and Stories, you must. But just to be able to talk about Paula in her studio, surrounded by all her props, all her kind of stuffed dolls and her her. her racks and racks of clothing that she features in her paintings it just makes it makes you feel like you're inside a Paul Arego painting 
Incredible, incredible. <laughs> I, I could listen so to you talk funny. about them all day <laughs> I mean, I have like had like 88 episodes, so I will not go on for too long. But I mean, so many guests who I would love. I mean, my dream is to interview Marina Abramovic. Wow. I, I've interviewed Tracy for another, Tracy Emin mm. for another podcast, but I can't wait to one day have her on my podcast. She is someone, when you think about this idea of rule breaking, mm. I mean, you know, what we're going through at the moment with this overturn of the road v. Wade and everything. Um, you know, she has been discussing these topics for so long. She has just been absolutely fearless. And when you look at her work from the 1990s, it, feel, it still feels so fresh and current and it reinvented what art could be. You know, she appears in the 90s chapter and she appears in the 21st, like the 2010s chapter about painting because she is someone who has just been completely at the forefront of everything and has spoken so honestly and rawly and truthfully that any of her work, you see it in different times in your life and it completely speaks to you. Mm no matter what circumstance it is. No, I couldn't agree more. You just touched on Tracy Emin, but are there any other artists or women or figures in general who are your real champions of rule breaking? Oh my God, um, completely Tracy Emin. I think Lubaina Hamid as well and Sonia Boyce and, you know, these women who were trailblazing in the 1980s and who, you know, didn't get the rightful recognition they deserve mm. then, mm. but are completely reveling in it now, which is the most important thing ever because, you know, Sonia Boyce won the Golden Lion Award this this year at the Venice Biennale. She was the first woman of colour to have the, to take over the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. I mean, insanity, but thank God things are changing. You know, I think that's all we can, I think we have to sort of put, put almost like a positive spin on it and think, okay, from, you know, I think the world completely shifted in 2020. That was the kind of complete mark. And I think that'll be forever remembered in history. But we are in this new world, which is so exciting. And there is a hunger for these stories. And what's amazing is that these people have been working for decades and they have so much to tell and so much to give and also almost so, so much more life to live. Mm -hmm. And to be able to sort of commentate on the world that we're living in through art is just a remarkable thing. And also because these artists were working so honestly and maybe because they didn't get the institutional recognition, they could actually do their own thing in a way. Maybe they their work speaks so loudly to the times we're living in now. And we're so lucky to have these artists. Speaking of now, are there any artists of today or young emerging uh, women artists who you've got your eye on? Oh my God. Well, I end the book with Samaya Critchlow, Flori Oknovich and Jade Fadjatimi. And mm. they are these amazing women. They're friends of mine and they're all born in the 90s. And they are just absolutely killing it. Yeah. I mean, Jade, her language is so unique and the way that the kind of colours seep in underneath, it's like this electric and you feel like you're kind of in this out-of-body experience yeah, when you're exactly. looking at her work. And it's this, you know, abstraction is such a hard thing to get right, I think. Oh, wow. Well, that has been the most illuminating conversation, but you are a busy, incredibly <laughs> multifaceted, multi-talented woman. What is next for you? So, I mean, I would love to turn the book into a TV series. I mean, my hero is John Berger, mm -hmm. although he's a man, he's great. And Ways of Seeing is one of my favourite things in the whole world. So Ways of Seeing is a book, but it's also a TV show. And it's a really thin book made up of all these different essays, written and photo essays. And it's about looking. Mm. And then he made it into a TV series, which are four 30 minute episodes, which you can find on YouTube. And it's just about how art relates to society and how we look 
at art and how art sort of relates to advertising or commercialization or something. And he just puts it in such a brilliant way. It's such a simple way of television. He's just sort of standing in front of a blue screen with this like amazing sort of Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and he kind of just goes through books or asks kids about what they think about a painting. And when you, when, you know, we talked about that thing earlier about who was allowed into art history and who can be a voice for it. Anyone can. And when you hear these kids talking about Caravaggio, it's electric because it's like, yeah, let's talk about this painting. We don't know what this scene is, but let's like have a guess and let's think about like the world that we live in today. So I think I'd love to to do something like that for now please do yeah be cool and then just continue with the podcast uh maybe book two yes um and just enjoying this book really i mean it's being published all over the world which is amazing and i just can't wait to discuss it with everyone i urge everyone to read it thank you so much for being such an exceptional guest thank you for being a rule breaker it's been a pleasure talking to you katie thank, thank you. you so much alice it's been such a pleasure to be on your podcast the Rule Breakers was brought to you by Netaporte and Chalk and Blade. Hosted by Netaporte's content director Alice Casely Hayford and fashion director Kay Barron. The team at Netaporte was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The producer at Chalk and Blade was Fatuma Keira, and the managing producer was Laura Hyde. Original music by Alexis Adamora, and the series was mixed by Nasson De Silva. Enter the code RULEBREAKERS at the checkout for 10% off your first Net-A-Porte order. T's and C's and exclusions apply. To make sure you hear all the episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information, go to netaporte.com.